It's the 22nd of November, 2019. This is the ACR 2019 wrap-up video. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com, and this edition is going to be devoted to ACR 19 talk. Now, it's a week after the ACR. Are you done yet with the ACR? Are you headed up to here with ACR? Don't worry, we've got more to give you. We covered so much content at Room Now during that four-day meeting. We could be talking about this until mid-March next year. Don't worry, we won't. This week, next week, and then we'll get back to regular business. I want to go over with you some of the things I thought that I liked the most at the meeting. You know, uh, last week we did a Room Now Roundup, which is my half of Rheumatology Roundup that I do with Artie Cavanaugh every year. Um, and I think that was kind of interesting. I'll give you, I think, some of those today, but these are the ones that I liked from the meeting. I think my first one you already heard about, but I'm going to talk about it again. Emipalumab, Emipalumab, a late-breaking abstract presented by Fabrizio Di Benedetti. This is a monoclonal antibody against gamma interferon. It's got a drug name and an, and an indication. It's called GammaFant. It's used for... Um, the uh, HLH, primary HLH syndrome, uh, histiophagocytosis, and um, it can be used in macrophage activation syndrome. This could be a, an earth-shattering, uh, game-changing, life-saving new therapy. Right now, patients with MAS, who are usually patients with systemic JIA, or adults with systemic JIA, or adult stills, these are the ones who are at greatest risk. Now, it can happen a lot of other conditions, other autoimmune diseases like lupus and scleroderma and lymphoma and bad infections, but, you know, count them all up. It's mostly systemic JIAs who get MAS. And they're not quite as, not quite as bad as the perforin-driven HLH syndromes where those people are really sick all the time. But this is a life-changing kind of medicine. It was approved recently uh, for HLH. It can be used in MAS. It's very expensive. It's like a twice-a-week infusion. Um, and again, it neutralizes gamma interferon better than what we've previously been using, which was what? Cyclosporin or etoposide, depending on whether you're a rheumatologist, nephrologist, or etoposide being used by the hematologist. So uh, they know this works because people have bizarro lab numbers just crash down and get normal. Once they're given these infusions, people who are toxic become relatively stable. Uh, again, in this particular study of nine patients with MAS in systemic JIA, they, sh they showed uh, rapid clinical improvement, dramatic reductions in CXCL9 levels uh, with the first infusion of this monoclonal antibody against gamma interferon. They were able to lower their steroids. I think it's a game changer. If you're managing patients with stills, I think you should know about this. Uh, and it's going to be really effective for people who are sick in the ICU and in the hospital. I also talked about methotrexate last week, but I think it's worth uh, repeating. Dan Solomon's report, uh, 1890 is the abstract number, about the CERT cohort. That's the cardiovascular cohort where they tried methotrexate and no arthritis involved here, just cardiovascular patients at high risk given methotrexate. And some of the numbers that came out of that are helpful. You know the toxicity of methotrexate, but do you know the rare toxicity numbers that people get all hung up about? You know, people refuse to take therapy based on one in 1,000 risk. What are those risks? Well, let's talk about methotrexate pneumonitis. I saw two when I was a resident, and that was before methotrexate was even approved for use 
in rheumatoid arthritis, and I really haven't seen a case yet. A lot of talk about it, but no cases of it. I think folic acid prevents this. But in this study, where everybody got folic acid and usual dose of methotrexate, the event rate was, a, was higher on methotrexate, but it's really low. Seven cases versus on methotrexate versus one on placebo, uh, and that was a 0.3% uh, rate, or a, a, actually a, a the incidence rate was 0.2 per 100 patient years. So that would be two per 1,000 patients. This is why we rarely see this. But again, that's the risk. Uh, the other rare event is pancytopenia. Now, you know most patients who get methotrexate who get cytopenic are going to get leukopenic before they get pancytopenic. They don't ever get thrombocytopenic without pancytopenia or leukopenia. They don't ever get a severe anemia without the other elements being involved. The white cells are affected first and then all the cells get affected. And of course, it's usually patients taking normal doses going to renal failure and get basically then toxic doses of methotrexate. The risk of pancytopenia here was three per 1,000 on placebo and 13 per 100 on methotrexate. Um, not significant, but certainly numerically higher. Patients need to be on folic acid to also prevent this side effect. Pregnancy and discontinuation. I think this is a big issue um, in your patients who are, have RA and who um, are on a biologic and you don't know what to do with their biologic. Number one, almost all the biologics can be safely used to get pregnant on. The question is, once you get a positive beta HCG and a positive, positive pregnancy test, well, what do you do with the biologic? Do you stop it and whatnot? The general re re reflex here has been to stop the biologic and immediately with a positive pregnancy test. Uh, my hunch, based on watching some of the data over the last few years, is that that wasn't always as good as continuing the biologic. Um, and that's borne out by two abstracts in this meeting. Abstract 2292 comes from Italy and Spain, 86 patients, 83 patients. The abstract 2279 comes from Germany, 70 patients. They both say exactly the same thing. When they compared patients who stopped at, the posit at a positive pregnancy test versus those who continued and may have stopped later or may have continued throughout the pregnancy, there was a threefold higher rate of pregnancy complications. Uh, and, sorry, uh, first off, a threefold higher rate of flares during the pregnancy. On one of the studies, they actually looked at complication rates and they showed, again, not only were there more flares, more steroid use, there were more preterm births in those individuals who stopped it upon knowing that they were pregnant. The idea is that you don't know if an RA patient is going to flare during pregnancy. A third will. A third will be about the same. A third will get worse. The old idea of 80% going into remission once you're pregnant with RA is wrong, 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 and based on no data. The, all the studies I'm talking about with one-third, one-third, one-third are based on metric studies and prospective studies. So the idea here is get pregnant, and, and yes, you could stop, but you run the risk of flare. Uh, it may be wise to continue at least into the first trimester, and if a patient wants to stop, then you stop. Of course, if this is the first pregnancy, and you know, all first pregnancy moms are all wigged out about drugs and babies being born with three noses and that sort of thing. So they're going to drive the bus on decision making here and they're going to want to stop therapy and it's okay to go along with it. However, if they are sick and active with inflammation, mm -mm -mm, no, continue the drug. They'll do safe. Um, you can only grow a good baby in, in a milieu of no inflammation. 
So that's something you need to tell your patients. Look for the upcoming ACR guidelines on reproductive health. They're in review at the journal and AR3 manuscripts. It's going to be really great, great stuff when it comes out. It's a lot of, a lot of content. You'll be shocked at how much is going to be in there. Lupus trials, there was a lot of lupus trials that were presented, you know, negative trials for fenbrutinib, the BTK inhibitor, not only in lupus, but also in RA. I would not be developing a BTK inhibitor, um, bad idea. Uh, another CD20 monoclonal antibody, obentuzumab, also sort of failed, um, didn't look very good. Um, there was a study out of Japan, I, actually out of China, Telatacicept, you know, Tacicept has been studied before. Telatacicept is a fusion protein of Tassi and IgG1. Uh, it, it inhibits both BAF and April. Um, it's supposed to be really good at neutralizing them and decreasing B cell responses. Well, their results out of China were incredible. So incredible, I don't believe them. We need to see other data. I'm not even going to go over it. But the two, the two highlight studies were the TULIP studies. TULIP-1 and TULIP-2. TULIP-1 was presented by Dr. Rich Fury, where in uh, 457 patients with active lupus, no particular kind of lupus, they excluded really bad nephritis and cerebritis, um, and, and their primary outcome was an SRI-4 outcome, and it failed. TULIP, the, uh, the drug that they used was anafrolamab, 300 milligrams or 150 milligrams, failed against placebo. It did not meet its primary endpoint. There were other endpoints that looked a little better for anafrolamab. Now, anafrolamab, two years ago at ULAR, Dr. Fury presented a phase two trial, which was just gangbusters. You know, large delta treatment effects between placebo and the active drug looked like it was going to be the next savior for lupus. In, in phase three, it did not look good in TULIP-1 especially using the, again, the SRI4 standardized um, main primary endpoint in lupus trials. At the same meeting, a few days later, um, Moran from Australia presented the results of the TULIP2 study, which was kind of the same designs, kind of the same patients, 362 patients, anafrolamab 300 versus placebo. In, in this one-year study, boom, now it works. What's the difference? Primary endpoint was the difference. After discovering the SRI4 was a failed endpoint with this drug, they saw that the patients who were measured by the BICLA response, that's B-I-C-L-A, British Isle, something or other, uh, response measure were better, significantly better. So they changed the out primary outcome measure. They went over the FDA. They did not tell the uh, investigators in the TULIP2 study which were blinded. They changed the primary endpoint to a BICLA outcome and they showed it to be significant. Um, so they changed the game, the rules of the game, midway. Is that kosher? Well, it was kosher with the FDA. So what's the count now on anafrolamab and it's where it stands regulatory-wise? They got a positive phase two, a negative phase three, and a positive phase three. Do they go in for more or is this enough to go to the FDA and ask for approval? My guess is they're going to ask for approval. Let's wait and see. Um, there were a few abstracts this, uh, this, this year on the spondyloarthropathies that I thought were interesting. Number one, upadacitinib is one of the first to show uh, efficacy of a JAK inhibitor in patients with ankylosing spondylitis. I think filgotinib did that as well a year ago. Um, tofacitinib was studied early on in uh, AS, did not look so good, although they're back on the drawing board and maybe looking at that. But this, the data was really good. They were looking at um, ASAS 40 response rates, 50 versus 25%. Pretty impressive data. Also impressive were there were two studies about non-radiographic axial spa. 
Now, you know Sertilizumab has got, we talked about that last year, they got approval based on their trial in non-radiographic axial spinal arthritis. Um, and does that matter? Well, number one, there's not an ICD-10 ICD code for non-radiographic axial spa, so do you really need the approval? Or do you even see these patients? Again, they, they, they have MR, they have inflammatory back pain, either MR evidence, elevated CRP, but no radiographic changes to document spondyloarthritis or, or sacroiliitis. So there was a trial, the PREVENT trial with secukinumab using 150 milligrams in non-radiographic axial spa, positive study, and ixekizumab in non-radiographic axial spa, another year study called the COAST-X or COAST-10 study. They both look good. A lot of non-radiographic axial spa running around there. Where are these patients? I don't see a lot of them. It's just another indication without an ICD-10 code. Do you see them? Please tell me about this when you see me. So now that I'm on a rant, let's talk about Sjogren's syndrome. Abatacib failed, rituximab failed, pretty much everything failed. Well, this year, tocilizumab failed in primary Sjogren's syndrome. Look at the postings, it wasn't very nice. And then there's another study that, uh, what's it called? Ionalumab. Ionalumab is actually a, um, uh, a BAF receptor inhibitor. Um, and they had a positive report. They said that they met their primary endpoint with the uh, ESSDAI, the SDI criteria. That's about 10 variables all lumped together. Um, the, unfortunately, the ESPRI criteria, which is patient reported outcomes in Sjogren's, was not significant. Neither was the FACET, the fatigue score. And the, the ESSDI, the SDI, all the lines are going down together. Not much difference if you look at them, but nonetheless, they said it was significant. I'm not blown away. The bottom line is, it's all over. By the time you have Sjogren's syndrome, real Sjogren's syndrome, there's no inflammation to be treated here. I don't know why rheumatologists have this fascination with this. Give them spit, give them some eye drops, you know, manage the rare, 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 rare complications of RTA, lung disease, brain disease, etc. Sjogren's syndrome is a burnt out inflammatory, post-inflammatory state. And there was a lot, lastly, there's a lot of discussion about VTEs and JAK inhibitors, a meta-analysis of a number of different um, JAK inhibitors showed a slight increase in VTEs, venous thromboembolic events, with all the JAK inhibitors. As you know, the story on here is the first JAK inhibitor, tofacitinib, wasn't even in the label. No mentions of it in their clinical trial results. The other one, Jacophy or ruxolotinib, not even in the label. No mention of it other than a few cases of portal vein thrombosis post-marketing. So then comes baricitinib, Illumiant, from Lilly, and that becomes a big issue. They have an FDA hearing. It gets part of their label. Um, they had more events with the higher dose, four milligrams. So they get the two milligram indication and a black box, and they're off to the races selling their drug, and really with very low event rates. And by the way, they knew about this. It was no big surprise. It was in their label in other countries. So um, we're now looking at all the other new JAK inhibitors, filgotinib, upadacitinib, uh, a few others in development, worrying about will they have a risk of VTEs, DVTs, and pulmonary emboli. Well, again, things change when uh, Pfizer has a clinical trial study, a clinical study looking at long-term safety of tofacitinib against adalimumab, high-risk individuals, and after analyzing, you know, it was a fairly large study, I want to say 5,000 patients, some real large number, they showed that not the adalimumab patients, but the tofacitinib patients, especially 10 milligrams BID, the dose we don't use in rheumatology, only in ulcerative colitis, 
they had a higher rate of cardiovascular death and also VTEs. So the big discussion was not what's going on at the FDA, because nothing's really changed at the FDA or in the package labels, but in the EMA, the European equivalent to the FDA, they are sending out all kinds of warnings. PRAC has now advised the CHMP, who's now put a, a recommendation forward to the EMA about more stringent rules, basically saying that patients should not go on this drug, tofacitinib, but really all JAK inhibitors are in, at stake here, but specifically not, should not go on tofacitinib if they're at risk. That includes the elderly. That includes fat people, that includes people who are smokers and on, you know, uh, uh, estrogen contraceptives. Uh, obviously, if you had a prior history of VTEs uh, of any kind, you should not go on the drug. Previously, when they did an analysis of the, of the Pfizer data uh, back in May, they made a warning saying really nobody should be on the 10 milligram BID dose. And if you're an ulcerative colitis patient and you need that, well, you have to weigh the benefits versus the risk. Now they're saying really nobody should be on that dose. Um, again, benefit versus risk. But there's a bigger warning for patients going on JAK inhibitors, in tofacitinib, uh, and maybe down the line other JAK inhibitors. Again, I wouldn't get too crazy about this. The event rates here are really low. The event rate in rheumatoid arthritis is 0 0.5, 0 0.3 per 100 patient years. If it's augmented by a JAK inhibitor, it goes up to 0 0.6 or 0 0.7. So you're talking about one or two per 1,000 cases and everybody's getting all wigged out about it. Yes, patients going on JAK inhibitors, you should counsel them about the side effects. You should look and see if they are at risk for VTEs. If they had a VTE in the past, maybe you should look for alternative forms of therapy. But if your patients are on these drugs, whether it's, you know, tofacitinib, baricitinib, um, upadacitinib, uh, and they're doing well and you discover, oops, they had a VTE in the past, I wouldn't change my therapy. I'd discuss it with the patient and say, we'll monitor you. If you get, if you get a clot in your leg or, or shortness of breath, let me know. I'll know what to do. Anyway, those are the big issues coming out of the ACR meeting. Um, tune into the website for more good news from ACR 2019 next week. Um, by the way, it's open season, Room Now Live registration is now active. We'll be talking more and more about Room Now Live. It's going to be, again, the same Friday, Saturday, Sunday meeting beginning March 13th, 2020. It's going to be held in beautiful downtown Fort Worth, Texas. A grand experience was had by all who attended. We'll see you in Fort Worth. That's it for this week. Take care.